So as, as we talked about, we're, we're taking time to, to look at why it matters that we serve, why it matters who we serve and how we serve in this series uh, that, that we're titling Nice Serve, which if you've been around Summit, you're familiar with that terminology. That's our church-wide service day that has now become a church-wide service week, which is now a month-long series. And so we're doing this because we believe it's important, it's core to who we are, and so I'm thankful that we're engaging in this conversation. A long, long time ago, in uh, 350 AD, the Roman emperor, his name uh, was Julian, this is just after Constantine, he was fearing that, that Christians might actually take down the greatest empire in the world. He wrote this. He said, they have gained ascendancy in society, even in the worst of their deeds, through the credit they win for devoting themselves to caring for others. Did you get that? Here's what Julian is saying. Julian is saying something that I hope we believe is true, that we as followers of Jesus won't be all right all the time, but if we use the time we have to care for others, the world will notice, and it might just be more powerful than the most powerful people, and things in this world. I recently read a book uh, that I've been wanting to read for a while. It's uh, David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell. I love Malcolm Gladwell. I think his, his work is, is really brilliant, and he seems to take these really uh, far-reaching ideas that don't seem connected, and somehow he brings them all together, and so I just love that about his work. But David and Goliath, the book, is about underdogs. It's about what you do when the task seems too big uh, and, and the odds seem too long for you to actually succeed. And what Gladwell points out in his book is that the odds for underdogs aren't nearly as long as we think that they are. And they're definitely, definitely not as long as we think they are if the underdog chooses not to play by the rules, if they don't play into the hand of the giant, if they don't say, well, I guess this is the way things are and I guess I can't do anything about it. I guess I could never change things. As an example, if you totaled up all the wars that have happened in the last 200 years between very large nations and very small nations, here's what you would assume, I think, here's what I would assume, that the very large nation wins nearly 100% of the time. They have more resources, they have more ability, large numbers win, right? But actually, uh, there's a, a political scientist who did the study, his, his name is uh, Ivan Aragon Toft. He, he did this study and he found that the very large nation only defeats the very small nation 72% of the time. The underdog always has a chance. He went on further to study about uh, what happens when the very small country uses unexpected tactics, guerrilla warfare, unconventional methods, when they act unexpectedly. The smaller, weaker country in those instances over the last 200 years, the winning percentage climbs from 28% to 63%. The underdog actually is the favorite. It's the same reason why the press works in basketball. Now, if you have never watched a basketball game, uh, that's a personal affront to my Indiana heritage, but I will uh, do you the service of telling you about the press in basketball. So most of the time in a basketball game, what happens is the team that has the ball, the offensive team, is allowed to inbound the ball and move the ball to half court before the defense then begins to defend the goal to try to keep them from scoring a basket. But every once in a while, there's a team that's very well-trained, and very disciplined, and they say, we're not gonna give up half the court, we're gonna press the whole court, we're gonna play defense on the whole court, and that well-trained, well-disciplined team usually wins because there is something really powerful about the unexpected. 
When Christianity spread across the known world, the empire in charge, the Roman Empire, had this basic thinking, this basic pattern that dominated how the empire worked. Serve Caesar, serve Rome, and if you don't, you're eliminated. So if you have any power at all, any little amount of power, you have to use that power to build the power of the powerful. The Christians, the very first Christians, they turned that upside down. They didn't have massive numbers. They didn't have huge financial assets. They didn't have big political power. But whatever power they had, they used that to care for those without any. They relentlessly pursued the idea that no one should be overlooked and everyone should be cared for. So the gospel, the truth of God's love once and for all through Jesus, it didn't spread because the first followers of Jesus acted like everybody else or accepted, well, this is just how things are. The gospel spread because people wanted to worship God and they wanted to be like and follow their savior, Jesus. And so what they saw Jesus doing, they saw him serve and love and meet with people and take time for people. He saw, they saw Jesus wash feet and, and, and wipe away tears and ask provocative questions like, what do you want me to do for you? And they wanted to be like Jesus. They wanted to live like Jesus lived, and they wanted to bring this thing into the world, this thing called shalom. There's a, a theologian, Neil uh, Plantinga, who describes this word shalom. Uh, it's translated peace in the scriptures, uh, and we talked about it in the Justice series a couple months ago. But this idea of shalom is this, that the creator God had a plan. And the plan was to web together God, humans, all creation in equity and fulfillment. So you can think about what these first Christians were after, what they pursued relentlessly, this thing that turned the world upside down. You can think of it this way. If I had a thousand threads, little, little threads, and I threw them on the ground here, uh, they, they, they wouldn't make a fabric, right? They would just be threads in proximity to each other. They become a fabric. They become webbed together as they go over, under, through, as they engage with each other. And the more they're woven together, the more interdependent they come and the stronger they become. That's how, how threads become fabric. As Tim Keller describes it, that's how the world is supposed to be, a beautiful, harmonious, knit, webbed, interdependent relationship with each other. So that's how the gospel spread. That's why we're sitting here now having heard the gospel because a ragtag group of obscure nobodies said, we believe in this knit together world. We believe that no one should be left out. We don't have all the answers and all the resources, but we have one thing. We have love and we see that there are people in need and we see there's a need for repair. As Michael Frost uh, puts it, he's a writer, brilliant writer. He says, the followers of Jesus surprised the world with their unlikely lifestyle. And it raised an insatiable curiosity among the average Romans. The question is, do we live like that? Do we live in a way that, that leads to an insatiable curiosity of the people around us? Do we live curious lives where people are like, I, I don't know what's going on there, but I need to find out more? And you may think, okay, well, that, like you said, that was a long time ago, 350 AD, and Christians turned the world upside down, and it was a whole different time. That was a long time ago. You should see it now. Now the need is so big, the need in this world, the divide is so great, and honestly, I'm just a person. Like, what am I supposed to do? I'm so glad that God turned the world upside down through average people back then, but now is so different. Maybe the gap is 
wider between people. Maybe the need is greater. I mean, you don't even have to turn on the news to see that there's a great divide in our world. Just post on Facebook this afternoon who you voted for in the last election and why and see if things knit together after maybe two or three minutes. Or what about things like, like poverty, unemployment, education in inner cities, I mean, 26,000 children in our community live on less than $2 a day. That's called extreme poverty. One in four children in our community live in families that make less than $26,000 a year. 49% of people in our state are described as financially insecure. 49%, one in every two of us. Orlando ranks dead last in median income of all major cities in the nation, which essentially means that People are working really, really hard out there and they can't provide for their families. Those are statistics, but what about in our own neighborhood? I mean, we talk to our neighbors and we hear of, of struggle. Maybe, maybe we have a neighbor that's feeling alone because that person that was never supposed to leave did. Maybe there's an elderly woman across the street and her, and her health is just failing and she can't get by. The need around us goes on and on and on. There are people out of work in our own communities and they're, they're, they're struggling. And all this, all of it feels giant, and it is. Need is big in our community. It's big inside this room, and it's big outside this room as well. So the question is, like, how do we surprise the world? Like those first, first Christians, how do we surprise the world and weave things back together that have been torn apart when it seems so big and we feel like underdogs? I think we would do well, and I think the world would do well if we acted like underdogs. More on that in a minute. In this NYSERV series, we've been looking at uh, an Old Testament book uh, called Isaiah, and particularly we've been looking at Isaiah chapter 58 together, and so we're spending some time there. Now, this was written 500 years or so before Jesus was born and 850 years or so before Emperor Julian talked about those Christians who were acting in this incredible way. But Isaiah, and particularly chapter 58, is, is a chapter about worship. And it's actually a, a, an answer to a question that began in Isaiah 56. So it goes this way. If God's desire is to heal and lead and comfort and weave back together his broken world, why is the world the way it is? Why is it still like this? Why is there still hurt and brokenness and things not right in the world? God, why is the healing taking so long? That's the question that was asked. Maybe you find yourself this morning asking that same question in a different way, but maybe you think, like, that's kind of how I feel. Like, the world isn't right, and I don't get it. If God is good, like, why is the world not the way it's supposed to be? And if you read through uh, Isaiah 58, particularly in verse 2, it's clear that the people that were asking this question, God, why is the healing taking so long? These are church people. These are people of worship. It says, day after day, you, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my way. In the Hebrew, essentially, that's worship. They were passionate people. They wanted to know from God how to live. They, they studied his commandments. Their personal morality was practically flawless. They weren't just present in worship. They were fastidious in worship. They went to church. They prayed. They fasted. These were religious people. But one commentator says there was a fatal flaw in their worship, one that 
It might make sense for us to pay attention to. This missing piece of their worship we see in in verses 3 and 4 of Isaiah 58. And this is on the back of your bulletin if, if you want to look at it. On the day of your fasting, you do as you please. You exploit your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and the striking of each other with fists. This day meant to to focus on the goodness of God is actually bringing the worst out of people. So here's what was happening. God's people, the people he chose to reflect his character in the world, they were living a religion that assumed a relationship with God, but they were discounting every other relationship with everybody else, and it was further tearing the fabric that God was trying to pull back together. And so God responds to this this way in Verse six of of chapter 58, it says, this is God speaking through Isaiah. Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of oppression, to untie the cord of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood. What God is essentially saying through Isaiah here is he's saying we should care about structures and systems that leave people needy, that leave people uncared for and unnoticed, but that should be joined with our care for individuals. If he were saying it today, I think he'd say something like this. Your posting about the issue on Facebook should be joined to you moving toward the individuals you're posting about because at its core, what is ripped, what is torn apart is relationships relationships that are being brought back together. So the question might be, that's worship? Like, that's worship. That's the missing piece of their worship because they showed up and they went to church and they prayed and they fasted, but God says there's a missing part of the worship and it's serving others, it's caring for others. God couldn't be more clear. The answer is yes. Serving others in need around us, that isn't the summation of our worship, but it is an integral part of it. And serving others in need around us, it isn't the summation of shalom, but it is an important part of how we get there. Serving others is is how we reflect the worthiness of God. That's why it's an act of worship, by how we love and serve whomever and whatever God says is of worth. And he says you've never locked eyes with someone that doesn't matter deeply to him. And so our lives become worship as we serve others. That's an integral part, an important part of how we worship. And in fact, Jesus says something very similar in John 14. In verse 12, he says, whoever believes in me will do what I've been doing. In fact, whoever believes in me will do greater things than these. Look, call me an idealist. Call me a romantic. I don't think Jesus is being hyperbolic here. I don't think he's using poetic language. I think Jesus meant it. I think he really meant that we as his followers will do greater things than he. And I think what he means by that is that we'll find increasingly creative ways to love and care and serve people around us. And we'll have an impact on this world greater than any of us can individually because we all reflect the image of God better than any of us do individually. As I mentioned earlier, I'm originally from 
Indiana. And so nine years ago, some of you know this, nine years ago, my family and I moved down here. And when we moved uh, from Indiana to here, we didn't know anybody. And so we knew pretty quickly we were going to have to to find uh, some support because we left our family and our friends and, and our church family. We were born and raised and went to school and worked in Indiana like Indiana was, was it. All our people were there and we were coming down here. And so we said pretty quickly, we're going to have to find a church or we're not going to make it. And, and, and we wanted to dive in when we found whatever church. And so uh, a few weeks after coming to Summit, we did this thing called Nice Serve. And I'll never forget that first Nice Serve. What we did, we went out to a field. We drove out to Apopka, which we were new to the area, so it seemed like it was in the middle of nowhere. And now that we've been here nine years, uh, we realize Apopka actually is in the middle of nowhere. But um, <laughs> So we drove out to Apopka, and uh, we were in this cornfield picking corn. And the deal was that, that it was going to be tilled under because it couldn't be, used, it couldn't be sent to Publix to, to be eaten for whatever reason. And so they needed to put new crops in. So they were just going to till under this whole field of corn. But they said to this organization, you can come in and, and pick the corn and you can help uh, use it to, to feed the hungry in our city. A really cool partnership between the, the farm and this organization. And so uh, a team of people with green shirts on, green nicer shirts on, went out to that field and, and, and we were picking corn and Caleb was maybe three at the time so he was running around picking corn and Abby and I were there and I had Eden on my shoulders for most of the time because uh, you may not know it if you've never been in a cornfield but corn plants can be pretty brutal, they can cut you up and so I, I, the reason I knew that is my brother and I used to have this game where uh, cornfields all around us, like you know the stereotypes are true uh, when I was growing up and so there was this cornfield and we would, uh, we would race from one end to the other but the goal wasn't actually to get there first, it was actually to have the least amount of cuts on you when you got to the other end. In Indiana, that's called fun. Um, and so I had Eden up on my shoulder so she didn't get all, get all cut up. And I just remember thinking in that field as we were picking corn, I was like, this, this is significant that all these people who could be anywhere else are right here picking corn, getting all cut up because hungry people matter. And we're doing it together, and there's something significant about that. And I remember thinking there's something surprising and good and lovely about what's happening here. A few months after we, uh, we did that first nice serve nine years ago, we were in a Summit Connect group, small group, and we wanted to go back because we just loved what they were doing. And we said, you know what? We need to continue to serve with these guys, which is really always the vision for NYSERV, that it would lead to ongoing lifestyles of service. And uh, so we wanted to try that. And, and so uh, we organized this thing with our group. And everybody's like, yeah, we're totally going to go back. This is the best. And we're like, great, we'll meet at the field uh, in Apopka. And so we drove out there and realized, oh, everybody else didn't really mean it. And so uh, it was the Abbott family, so the, the four of us, and then one guy of a husband and wife couple and his two kids. And so there were, there were like three adults and four kids and this organization had come out and they, they rented these trucks to take us out to the field. And so we said, I, I said, I'm so sorry to the organizational rep. I was like, I, we'll come back. We'll try to, try to get more people here. Sorry to, to waste your time. She said, no, 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 let's, let's go out. I mean, they're going to till this, this field under tomorrow. And it was a cabbage field, um, which was so cool because little kids, like it's hard work to lift a cabbage. So when they finally got one, they felt like He-Man, uh, which was really fun. But so she said, no, we're here. Like, just let's go out and see what we can do. So we said, okay. So we spent three hours doing that, and uh, it was so fun. And, and, and so then at the end of the day, she calls us over to, to where they're gathering up all these cabbage that we'd, that we'd picked, and they weigh them out. And she said, hey, I just wanted to tell you um, that, that you picked 5,000 pounds of cabbage, which is amazing. These like a small little group of people, and we picked 5,000 pounds. That was so great. And she said, oh, I also want to let you know how we calculate things 
is uh, one pound of cabbage because it's so densely nutritious and, and actually can feed one person. So she said, she said you just fed 5,000 people. When Jesus said you'll do greater things than these, I don't think what he meant was, I fed 5,000, you'll figure out how to feed six. What I think he meant is, you will find increasingly creative ways to serve and fill the needs of people around you. What you'll do as my followers is you'll stare down things like small numbers and long odds, and you won't back down. And as you do, as you refuse to back down, you'll surprise the world in how you care for them. That's why we created NYSERV, to surprise the world. It's a chance for everyone to get together, for all of us to be alongside each other, surprising the world together, acting like underdogs, changing the equation. So every NYSERV, about 1,000 people who call Summit home, they get on green shirts across our campuses, and they go and they serve in these multiple places, and it's awesome. We've done it 30 times, and over those 30 times, it's added up to 100,000 hours of community service for our community. That is amazing. NYSERV is awesome. And now we've established these great ongoing relationships with these good organizations that are doing Christ-honoring work. This is the type of church I want to be a part of. So what's this about changing NYSERV? Like, if it's so great, why are we changing it? It's a fair question. Here's the thing. Over time, the church has grown. And when we started Summit, we were all 22, 25, didn't know what to do. If you're 22, 25, I promise you, you know more than we did when Summit got started. Uh, and, and we could just show up. And there, and there was kind of a chance for that to happen. But as we've grown and life stages have changed as a church, we really want to live into the value. The value hasn't changed that we're a church that's good for the world outside the four walls of the church, a church that matters for people and our community. We really value that. We all want to be a part of this together. And so because the value hasn't changed, the process might actually need to. We may need to refuse to fight like the world expects or even how we've grown accustomed to. Look, we just celebrated Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, and if it teaches us anything, it's that change, not for change's sake, but change for the sake of others is at the heart of what God wants to do in this world. So if you're a family and you have kids and you have leagues and you have practices and all of that, if you're a college student and you're cramming for finals, it may be difficult to make it on a specific Saturday morning to serve alongside everybody else. And so we're thinking differently about NYSERV because we really value all of us serving together. This time around, they're gonna be Saturday morning projects. If you love the Saturday event of Nice Serve and you're like, I can't imagine doing anything, good, be here, please. Please be a part of the Saturday event. It's gonna be awesome. But there are also projects happening throughout the week. And we've invited this, this, this bold creativity in the congregation and you guys have responded and I love it. Let me tell you a little bit about what's going on this week of Nice Serve. There's a group, uh, Summit Connect group from here at the Waterford campus. They're gonna go to the Ronald McDonald House on Monday because they'd heard about it and, and done a project there before and they're like, cool, we're just, we'll go there on Monday and then we'll come do the Saturday event. Awesome, I love that that's happening. There's a, a Summit Connect group from here. This one's really awesome. They, uh, they're gonna write letters of encouragement to men and women inside the 33rd Street Jail. We have a, a campus there and so uh, they're gonna write letters of encouragement to their brothers and sisters uh, in, in the faith. And they're gonna do that because uh, as, as Lindsay, who's uh, kind of spearheading the project said, 
There are four of us that are pregnant. Two are due in the next month. We don't know when we're gonna be available or if we'll be available. But instead of saying like, well, I guess we can't do it, she found a creative way. They found a creative way to still engage. I love that. There's a, a, a guy who coaches soccer for the YMCA. And he has games on Saturday, and, he, and, he, and that's an act of service in and of itself. But, uh, but he said, I want to be a part of, of NYSERV. And so what he did is he decided, you know what happens when, in soccer leagues when you have little kids is you buy them soccer shoes, and they're not free. They, you have to buy them, and they wear them eight times, and then they don't fit anymore, and then you have to buy them a new pair. Don't get me started on this. But... Um, so he said, let's make this better. Let's do a, a cleat exchange. So everybody's kind of bringing together, like, eh, these aren't going to fit next year, so you can have those, and they'll exchange them. And then the leftovers, there's an organization that will distribute them to kids in need who actually can't afford shoes, and he's going to take a grill out there, and it's going to be this whole kind of festival thing, and you get, I don't know, some gift certificate or something if you bring a pair. He, he's got this all together. That's how he's doing nice serve. It goes on and on and on. Let me give you just one more because I, I love this one. There's a Summit Connect group that uh, wanted to care for nurses at Florida Hospital that work with uh, babies and, and their moms. And so they called up and they said, we'd like to make custom mugs and a little care package for every nurse uh, that works with, with, uh, with babies and moms. And they thought, you know, 50 or 100, because I've been to a hospital before. I know how many people work there. Um, and so they're like, great, that's 549 nurses. And they were like, oh, gosh. Uh, but they were committed to the idea. And they said, well, we'll pull it off somehow. And so what they did is they, they said, we're, we're committed to this, but we could really use some help. And so uh, that started to go out to our different campuses. I sent an email on Thursday to our Summit Connect group leaders. Within 30 minutes, three groups had said, we're in. And so they're going to take some of them and they're going to uh, decorate them. They're at the info booth if you're one of those three people. Um, and, and they're going to be a part of that. That's all of us finding increasingly creative ways to love and serve the people around us. All of that is nice serve. All of it is nice serve. So we're expanding nice serve. We're changing things for the sake of others for the sake of having a deeper impact in our community. Remember, that's why we started this campus, to reach further and deeper into this community with love and hope and, and care for the sake of weaving things back together. Abraham Lincoln once said this, Let's, let us have faith that right makes might. Let us have faith that right makes might. And in that faith, let us to that end dare to do our duty as we understand it. Let's have faith that right, being right with God, caring for people, uh, following him faithfully, even if the numbers aren't there, that that makes might. And let's do our duty accordingly. But let me, do, let me be clear. Because you could hear all of this and you could say, okay, I got it. I, I really do. I, I got it. So um, faithfulness, show up for worship, check. I got that. I'm here. I'm sitting here. Uh, personal morality, working on it. I'm doing pretty well there. I'll give myself a, a B plus on that. So I got that. Serving others. Oh, that's part of worship. Oh, got it. I don't have that check yet. I need to get that check. That's why I should do that. That's not on my list. I need, I need a longer list. That's, that's what worship is. If I add serving, then, then God will be pleased with me. L let me be really clear. That's exactly the, tri the type of thinking that Isaiah was critiquing. That thinking is, is actually fundamentally self-centered, not other-centered, which means it isn't worship. It, it isn't being about the things God is about. It's, it's, it's a way of being faithful for, for my own sake. Let me give you an example. Say you got up uh, yesterday morning 
and uh, you slept in a little bit, you had a little bit of free time, and, uh, and your kids are cleaning the house. Uh, they're cleaning baseboards, and they're dusting, and, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is something I've talked about, and I've dreamt about, and I've tried to instill in my kids. This is like a wonderful thing that's happened. Not that this has ever happened to me. It's all totally hypothetical. And so you're like, oh my gosh, this is like the, this is amazing. I, they value what I value. This is a wonderful thing. And then the moment they put the duster down and the, the thing in the trash can, they walk over to you with the puppy dog eyes and they're like, can we go to Target? Because the question uh, is actually this. Can we go to that place that has everything I want that puts a magical spell on you and makes you say yes to whatever I ask for? That's Target in kids' minds. Uh, so if you've never been to Target with your kids, don't take them. Um, Right? That's not serving for the sake of others. That's serving to get what you want. And therefore, uh, not others focused. So how do we get to a place where we obey God, where we serve others, where we have that be a part of our worship, not for our sake, where we do what's right in his eyes for his sake? Well, I think we have to see Christianity for what it is. I think we have to see it as a story of God identifying with the poor. Jesus said, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. Proverbs says, if you lend to the poor, you lend to me. Jesus even said, foxes have holes, but the son of man, talking of himself, has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was essentially homeless. And he rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. And he ate his last meal in a borrowed room. And he was laid in a borrowed tomb after his crucifixion. Jesus, the savior of the world, was poor. That's a beauty that'll get you outside of yourself, remembering him. That's a motivator for serving others. In a few minutes, we're gonna close our service by taking communion together for that very reason, because serving others as an act of worship, it starts with remembering him. But before we do that together, let me talk just a little bit more about Emperor Julian. Remember the guy that had that statement about even, even when they mess up, they're gaining ascendancy because they, they care for the need around them. Emperor Julian, he saw what Christians were doing in the world and how they lived. And in the face of this Jesus-following movement, what he did is he actually started a campaign. This sounds crazy, but it's true. Out love the Christians. Like that's what he, he was like, that's what we're gonna do. Uh, and he said this, I believe we really ought to truly practice every one of these virtues of the Christians. And his new social program, he, he kind of put all the systems together, his new social program utterly failed. He couldn't motivate people to care for the needy. Why? Well, he missed something that was so important, so foundational. He missed that Christians weren't motivated by empire building, were motivated by grace. We demonstrate surprising love and mercy because we've been extended surprising love and mercy. It's been extended to us first. See, serving is an act of worship, but it's the underdog act of worship. It's an act that reminds us that when the odds were long for us, when we needed help, when we had no way out, God, in a very, very surprising way, he entered the mess for us and he served us. Serving is an act of worship, but it's the underdog act of worship. And so if we're willing to see Jesus when we look into the eyes of those in need, we'll fall in love with them. And if we remember that he served first, we'll be people motivated by love and by grace and we'll think like underdogs and it will change the world. It will. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge that you give us 
not just from your scriptures from a couple thousand years ago, a challenge you give us today, continue to be my hands and feet in this world. Continue to find increasingly creative ways to love and to serve and to point people home. I pray that we would be willing to do that. And as we come to your table, I pray that we would do so as an act of worship, remembering first that you served not serving to earn your love. Your love is already freely given to all of us, but as a reflection of your love, I pray that we would be empowered through remembering you and that we would be emboldened through remembering you as well. It's in Jesus' name, amen.